Just a content warning for this episode. We discuss operations, including the death of soldiers. So if that's something that might upset you, you might want to miss this one. Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who sees the officer-platoon-sergeant relationship as being more than just having complementary skills. Understanding each other's roles and knowing that I am there to support him at all occasions, not just the good times, but also the dark, deep, bad times that we went through as a platoon, I was there for him throughout that period. And who find opportunity in difficult situations. So when somebody says something to me, I'm not going to wait for up teamwork to be able to explain it or talk through it, but I'm going to talk about it. And the more I talk about it and the more we talk about it, the more people are exposed that the army is not as bad as we think it is and we are driving forward in a good place. Captain John Werrett, known as Wes, was born and raised in Zimbabwe. In 2001, he joined 1st Battalion the Staffordshire Regiment, which later became 3 Mercian and then 1 Mercian. He has served in regimental duty at all ranks, including time in the Reconnaissance Platoon. He was the Regimental Sergeant Major of the Support Weapons School as it became the Combined Arms Manoeuvre School and has instructed at AFC Harrogate, ITC Catrick and on loan service at Brunei's Officer Academy. Wes has served on tours in the Balkans, Iraq and Afghanistan and after a late entry commission, he's now the company second in command of Dragon Support Company. In this conversation, we explore moral courage, respectful challenge and finding teachable moments from examples of unconscious bias. But we also look at the continuity in the character of leadership, even though our roles and responsibilities change as we move through our career. Responsibility came early in Wes's career. After a space and reconnaissance card became available at short notice, Wes seized the opportunity and did so well on the course that he was promoted to Lance Corporal on the day that it finished. But he always had ambitions to go further. When I got my stripe, I was very cocky in what I said, but I believed in everything that I had that I was going to be the RSM. So I stood in his office, I looked him in the face and I said, Sir, one day I'm going to be the RSM of the 1st Battalion Staffordshire Regiment. And I believed in everything that I had that I was going to be the RSM. Did you make it? Yes, not of the regiment. Uh, I was a W01 and I was the RSM of the Combined Arms Manoeuvre School and was really proud to be a, a W01 and an RSM in such an establishment. Do you think having that ambition early on helped? And what is the advantage you get from being in recce? Because I, I, I see the two as being connected. One is confidence, but also there's a lot of competence and responsibility put on you in recce. So your reconnaissance for the battle group commander, the CO is asking you where everything is. So you're often developing that level of autonomy because you're the one that's out there trying to find everything. Do you think those two things helped early on? I think it's a combination of, of the both. I think having the ability to understand 
the battle group context is one. And then being able to have the moral courage to say what you think and what you think to be right. And it's the understanding of the two. Because when a commanding officer is asking you, what is your opinion? Trying to formulate the plan on the back of what you think the plan is and what you think is the right way to do it. So it was always key for me. And I think it's a little bit of arrogance within Recce. And I think people within that establishment will know that there's an element of you have to do your job and you have to do your job well, or else the consequences of not doing it well is catastrophic. You promoted to corporal after doing section commander's battle course in Brecon. Did you stay within Recce or did you take over section command and a rifle platoon at that No, time? I went into a rifle company. I went to A company and A company were deployed on Optelic 6 at the time. Um, the, the step up was, was never that great because I was always a section commander in terms of what I did. However, I needed to then realise that as a section commander, I was then in charge of the section, so there was no more excuses of I wasn't trained to do this job. So I was then trained to do it, so I had to now execute on what I had been trained on. So the arrogance of Recce had to diminish quite quickly because I had to understand what it meant to be part of a section and what that section did and how we carried out our function within a platoon. Did you have much time to work with the section before you went out on Optelic 6? Yes and no, because I spent majority of the time of our prep leading up to Optelic 6 on SCBC. So I was, I was in Bracken majority of the time, and I actually flew out late to meet the company in theatre already. So you had to take over a section in theatre? I took, I took over my section in theatre. Did that create any particular leadership challenges for you? Because you were five years into the army by this point? Yes. So having having served for four years at the time of us deploying, I had to understand how my leadership style needed to be imprinted on that section. Now, I was lucky enough that one of the platoon sounds was one of my mentors, and I looked up to him all through his career, and I think we followed each other as careers went on. But I, I had the opportunity to look up to him and for him to allow me to integrate into the platoon and into my section in only the way I know, which is grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and leading from the front, which is quite easy to do as a section commander because section commander, I think, is probably one of the best ranks that you can get to because you've now been trained to close in and kill the enemy quite quickly and lead from the front. Age-wise, you must have actually been younger than some of the soldiers you were commanding. How did you manage that element of leadership? Was there any specific things that you had to do to make that easy for yourself? Did you have any challenges from that regard? So I was lucky enough that I joined the army at 21. So a lot of the soldiers that actually join as private soldiers join at uh, 17, 18 years old. So I was lucky that I was already slightly older. Because I was older, I was always trying to catch up to people that were already my age that were in certain positions. So I drove myself a little bit harder than I had to if I was 18 or 19 at the time. So I didn't really find that as, a, as an issue. But in the army tents and in the infantry, I think you're only as good as the time you've served. So I had to really work hard at convincing people that as a four-year corporal, I could lead a section on operations and lead them well. Because without a doubt, there was people that would have looked at me and thought, you never served enough time as a lance corporal, or you never served enough time as a corporal to then be out there and lead. But it's the way your leadership style is portrayed on that group will allow them to either follow you or go against you. 
And when you look back, were there any particular styles of leadership? We talk about the difference between transformational and transactional. Did you think about that at the time, maybe in different terminology, coaching and authoritative? Or was it just by knowing your job really, really well, knowing the doctrine really well, knowing the tactics really well, and then making sure that when you were back in barracks that the G1 side was looked after? I think it was always, for me, like I said, a sex commander never looks at anything other than how he's going to fight that battle within his section. So I always thought, and I looked at various people around me that I used as my mentors, and like I said, my platoon sergeant was very influential in everything that I thought someone in leadership needs to look like. He put everyone else first. Uh, and I'll give an example. When I got to theatre, all the dates had already been set for everyone going back on r and And my daughter was due to be born on the 2nd of September 2005. And he gave up his R&R dates for me to then be able to go back and be with my daughter because my R&R date would have come after my daughter was born. And that resonated with me for the rest of my career because I thought to myself, if he could do that selfless action to somebody that had come from within his platoon, then I'm sure I could do the same when I was in that position. And not only is that giving the people within your platoon the value and R&R and looking after the things that really matter to them, family, spending time at home, but also it helps build loyalty and comradeship and an esprit de corps within the platoon. So after Telic, did you go into one of the training establishments and how did that work out for you? So after Telic on returning and the way the army structure works, you have to, I think, if you want to go far, you have to expand your teachable moments. And I was offered the opportunity to go to Catrick, ITC Catrick, which is a, a golden opportunity for a sex commander in an infantry battalion to go to ITC and teach the next private soldiers coming through. But the way it was actually described to me was I was only given the opportunity to go to Catrick because there was loads of foreign and Commonwealth soldiers coming through Catrick, and I would be an example for those soldiers. I held my moral courage and refused to go, simply because I had done SEBC and done well on it. I had been on operations and done well. It wasn't going to be the colour of my skin that would get me to ITC, but it would be my ability to do my job. So I turned that down. Uh, and then was given uh, AFC Harrogate, and it, it wasn't a substitute, and I don't think it was. I absolutely loved the time I had at AFC Harrogate because it taught me that teaching junior soldiers and younger soldiers the ability to join the AM and how to do it and how to do it correctly was probably the most rewarding and challenging time I had within that corporal period. That's also a really interesting insight about how when we're in a position of followership to challenge appropriately up the chain of command because Catrick was a plum posting to have been offered but you wanted to use it as teachable moment to make sure that the people offering you the work understood that it shouldn't just be as a product of the color of your skin so you made a choice to turn that down but, but use it as a teachable moment in a moment of moral courage whilst also appropriately challenging a decision. Agreed and I think not withstanding that one of the RCMO was a mentor to me because he was the RSM that I spoke to in his office, but understanding that he accepted what I said and how I said it. So it's not just about challenge, it's the way you challenge, how you challenge, and whether the person that's being challenged is able to accept 
that he's got it wrong and has the ability and the moral courage as well to understand that change the way it is. So it's not necessarily a one-way street. I think both of you have to understand mistake is made, you address it and we move on. How did you then find the step going up to Sergeant? So you, you talked about your Sergeant on Optelic 6 being someone you really looked up to and you really took a lot from. When you then went into the role as a platoon sergeant and it was Herrick 14 that was the operation you, you were on, how was that for you? What was what was your time as a platoon sergeant like? I think um, I've been in the Army 22 years and looking back at it, that is probably the most challenging step up that I had going into the science mess and earning my my right to be in the science mess having done the platoon science bell course. And then taking a platoon on operations was an absolute step up to where I thought I was and what I thought I was going to do. A leadership story that I'll tell is when we were in theatre, my platoon commander, a very young platoon commander, a very competent platoon commander, we were deployed out clearing a piece of ground through the Helmand district. And as we were going through, we were broken down into two multiples. I had one multiple and he was in charge of another multiple. We had a cutoff, which was consisting of two jackals and two warriors. Unbeknown to us, the vehicles were gonna get ambushed. And on the 3rd of June, uh, 2011, we had our first fatality and casualty. We lost Corporal Pike that day. And through that day, I understood what real leadership on operations means to me as a leader. So as we were dealing with the crisis of losing a soldier or potentially losing a soldier, my platoon commander then told me I had to come to him in order for us to make up a plan of how things were going. And it was covering a piece of about 500 meters between us. But at the same time, there was a lot going on on the radio. There was a lot going on around us. We were still under contact and we were still in the fight. So trying to deal with all these complications was quite a challenge for what was a young platoon San. And I say a young platoon San because of the amount of time I'd been in the army, having experienced operations for the first time as a platoon San. I then went over to the platoon commander and to say the least, we had some verbal words amongst each other. But it was in the space of that first five minutes of us shouting at each other, understanding in that moment that he wanted the best for the platoon. And I wanted the best for the platoon. But I think it was the leadership and the trust that we had built amongst the two of us that allowed us to come to a, an agreement. And I went back to, the, to my fire team. He stayed with his team. And we managed to then formulate a plan in order for us to consolidate and then for me to go to him. In that moment, I understood what it meant to him to be leading the platoon. And I think he saw what it meant to me to be leading the platoon as a platoon son. The day continued. The soldier was casivacked and went back to Bastion and unfortunately lost his life. And at the time when we consolidated with the platoon and were extracted off the ground and back to camp, I still had the adrenaline of the day. And you can ask anyone who's been in a contact situation, I think the adrenaline stays with you for a lot longer than you think. It was only when I was confronted by four Scots RSM when we got back to camp and he asked me, how do you feel? I actually feel and, and still till this day hear him say those words because with those words, he unarmed the bravado of this platoon sergeant, this corporal, this lance corporal, this private soldier that was flying all the way in through this leadership. 
it unarmed me to the point where I broke down. And that's probably the first time in my military career I had the opportunity for someone to hold me and say, it's going to be okay. You will be fine. You're going out tomorrow. You are a leader. This is the point where you will earn your keep as a leader. And I've always taken those words, are you okay, as such great words spoken. He doesn't even know how well those words help me become the person I am today. Thanks for sharing that story, Wes. You said there about giving you what you needed to go out and lead the next day. And you'd also said about you understood what it was like for the platoon commander to lead and he understood what it was like for you to lead from a platoon sergeant's position. So the platoon commander is always going to be a young platoon commander. He's probably been in the army two years or less. The platoon sergeant will always have the experience. And I always put it this way. It is the platoon commander's platoon to lead and it's the platoon sergeant's platoon to pull along and drag and put them in a position where the platoon commander can execute his orders correctly. We're still very good friends. And I think that on the back of the operation is exactly where you'd want the platoon sergeant, the platoon commander's relationship to grow and be in. I think understanding each other's roles and knowing that I am there to support him at all occasions, not just the good times, but also the dark, deep, bad times that we went through as a platoon, I was there for him throughout that period. And how did you manage that the next day? So you're in a platoon who's lost one of their corporals and you yourself have been going through a grief process through that. And then the next day you've got to go out again and and do operations. How did you lead on the next day? What sort of things were you doing or saying? Was it just leading by example and simply carrying on? So I think what we noticed quite quickly was everyone was nervous. And I think we couldn't show the fact that we were nervous. So the platoon commander and myself had a little sit down prior to briefing the platoon, which is something we never did. But I thought it's something that we had to do together. And we spoke to each other knowing that we were nervous. We were both nervous. But we couldn't show that we were nervous in front of the soldiers. Because as soon as we were nervous, I think that would have gone through the platoon. So we had to understand and know that we were on the same side. Know that we were saying the same thing, which was going to get the platoon back up and get them moving again. So leading from the front being the first one out the gate, being the one to then walk across the bridge first or clear the ground that we had walked past, understanding that the soldiers needed to see that there was nothing wrong. It was the same operation the next day doing the same thing we had been doing. The only thing that was missing was one of our soldiers, who was a big character within the platoon. So we had to cover that gap. And you cover that gap by getting back out and doing what you're trained to do. So the next time that you had a position of command and control as a non-commissioned officer was when you become a warrant officer and you were then the company sergeant major. Still at One Mercian, was this? Yes, still at One Mercian. I, I do say that there's there's three real distinct jumps as a as a soldier. I think you, you jump from the corporal's mess to the sans mess, which is a, a huge jump in terms of responsibility. You then go through your career as a sergeant and a colour sergeant and then you're exposed to the warrant officer and the warrant officer jump from colour sergeant to warrant officer. I think it's quite critical to realise that as a warrant officer, and not just a warrant officer, a company sergeant major, you're the most senior soldier in that company. The officer commander, 
looks at you and asks you your opinion. And I think it's quite critical at that point what you say and how you say it because it influences business. I think my first real introduction to being a company Sam Major was we had been told to go to Battis. And when we were in Battis, the commander asked for the CQMS and the Sar Major to brief him on where they were staying and how they were going to go about their business. When I got there with my corporal student next to me, who was acting as the CQMS, uh, when I got there, the RSM looked at me and said, um, I just want the Sar Major only and not the CQMS, so you can go. There was not many W02s that were of ethnic minority at the time within the battalion and within the army as a whole. So he'd presumed you're the CQMS so presumed, because you're a person of colour. He presumed I was the CQMS. Right. And at that point, um, I said to him, I was the SAR major and he was the CQMS. I could have taken that in loads of different ways. But my background and the way I've grown up is I give somebody the benefit of the doubt and understanding that he's probably just used a little bit of his unconscious bias to then expose himself in a position that is not comfortable for him and for me. So I spoke to him, uh, he apologised, and we move on. And I think that is something that I have managed to challenge within my career in terms of the way the army's demograph has changed to foreign commonwealth and ethnic minorities. But I think there's a teachable moment at every occasion where people either use a little bit of unconscious bias or a little bit of not understanding the situation and me being able to explain it. I think it's carried me for 22 years and I think I will not change the way I do it. So I'll teach the moment and then if you do it again, then we've got an issue then. Are there ways to teach us beyond just teachable moments? So you ended up as a regimental sergeant major. When you're in that position, were there ways that you were kind of teaching that more frequently or did you only ever use teachable moments as ways to challenge that level of unconscious bias. Do things like op teamwork um, have a part in this? So the army introduced op teamwork on the back of all the incidences that were happening. I'm not saying the army's free of racism. I'm not saying that. Op teamwork is an absolutely great tool. But what I say when I do the briefings, and as an RSM, I was quite influential in the way we ran our op teamwork at the Combined Arms Manoeuvre School. But what I do say is, I am a person of colour within a position as RSM and I'm able to explain and teach stuff 365 days a year. So op teamwork is one day, it's the focus of what the army's focus is on DNI. However, I am black 365 days a year. So when somebody says something to me, I'm not going to wait for up teamwork to be able to explain it or talk through it, but I'm going to talk about it. And the more I talk about it and the more we talk about it, the more people are exposed that the army is not as bad as we think it is and we are driving forward in a good place. You talked about there being three big jumps in your career as a soldier and you've just made the most recent of those, which is commissioning as a late entry officer and you're now a captain. How has being a captain been different to being a W01? It is an absolute jump, in my opinion, because it's a whole new career stream. I think the way it was explained to me was it was starting a new career afresh. 
I think there's there's no better privilege of being a W1 and a regimental SAR major. And then going through the AOSB process of then commissioning is such an uncomfortable position to be in because you've been interviewed, you've been asked to go outside of your comfort zone and allowing yourself to be exposed to this uncomfortable place that you've never seen or heard of before, and then commissioning. It's probably the most proud I've been of myself, um, and I, I, I always like to not put shine on myself, but myself and my family, because at the detriment of my family, I have managed to, for 22 years, miss the birth of my son, drove myself late at night, worked hard to get to a position where I'm now a commissioned officer. And I am in the space where, as a commissioned officer, the difference is, and I said this in my interview, that a commissioned officer is the coach of a football team and a warrant officer is the captain. He doesn't really get the process of what's happened in the background which is where the coach is doing all the work and he's working tremendously hard in order to get his tactics, his policy and everything right in order for the game to be had on Saturday in good order. And so as a one officer, I would never see what my QM tech or my MTO is doing, but I would be stuck in my office making sure that I'm implementing the policies that he is putting in. So I am the guy that is delivering on the policy. And all of a sudden... As a late entry officer, I am now on the other side. So I am the coach now, and I am the one implementing policy and putting policy into place in order for our soldiers to have a better experience within the army. What's been challenging about that for you? Has the leadership felt different? How have you started to alter the way you've led since you've become a, you're now company second in command? I, I don't think it's, it's a matter of me changing. I think it's the approach to the way I do things. Um, I've always been told, speak less, which is challenging for me anyway, because I, I am a guy that likes to express myself through my words. But understanding that I, I haven't changed who I am. I am still Wes from 2001. The only thing that's different is the rank that I now possess and the education that I've had through my leadership challenges and good times that have put me in the position I am now. So... In terms of change, I don't see change, but I have grown as a leader, I have grown as a father, a husband, and as a, as a colleague within my job. Well, thanks so much for taking us through your journey from private all the way through to captain, and really clearly talking about the differences and responsibility and what leadership means and all those different levels and the different challenges and the different opportunities as well. We like to finish the podcast with three quick fire questions. So first of all, what is your perfect way to relax? Perfect way to relax, uh, either watching my kids play sport uh, and one's a rugby player and the other one's a hockey player or just sat at home watching my beloved Liverpool. Did you play much sport when you were in battalion? Yes, I played uh, hockey for the army. I played football for the battalion, which was always great fun. Are there any films, celebrities, books, podcasts, any other heroes or heroines of yours that you draw leadership lessons from? Yes, I read quite early, I read Nelson Mandela's book. And I think what Nelson Mandela represented, incarcerated for so long, and how he came out and was able to forgive and forgive openly 
people that had put him in a position that he he was in jail for so long, over 20 years. I think the lesson I learned from that reconciliation that he gave people is such powerful lessons that I now take it upon myself that not at every turn I need to fight people, but sometimes a handshake, a pat on the back means a lot more. So I use Nelson Mandela all the time as probably one of the figures that I really look up to. That is a really good lesson. And finally, if you were to turn around and speak to Lance Corporal Werrett and offer him one piece of advice about leadership, what would it be? I think a young Wes was very cocky, was very arrogant, sometimes wouldn't listen. I think I was allowed the opportunity to fail and fail in my own way, which was a really good lesson that if I was to go back and speak to myself, I would be saying, take a breath, stop talking so much and understand what the army want me to do, what the leadership part of my various roles want me to do and live your life. Do you think that was a particular leadership challenge that you learned a lot from, that, that difference between command and, and doing the job versus being liked? Did that take you a while to figure out, do you think? Definitely. Um, probably until I got to, uh, as a platoon son, I, I wanted to be liked. I wanted people to like me because I wanted to lead by people liking me. And sometimes, as a platoon son, I had to make decisions where I was putting people on guard or on courses or in various situations that they didn't want to be in. And I had to understand that it wasn't a point of friendship that I was putting them there. It was a directed task that they needed to do. So I had to break that mould within myself that as a leader, sometimes you had to stand on your own. And I found out as an RSM with my commanding officer that without each other, it was a lonely place. Leadership is a lonely place. So having a commanding officer that I could talk to and relate to was refreshing in that position. Wes, thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Wes talked about the challenge of standing on your own in leadership, such as tasking people to do things they might not want to do, but realising that that's the responsibility of leadership, and sometimes it's a lonely game. I also appreciated Wes's analogy about the difference between officers as the coach of a football team developing the strategy and plan and the non-commissioned officers or warrant officers as the captain on the field putting the plan into action. But I was most struck by his pragmatic and professional approach to unconscious bias. Wes chooses to respectfully challenge unconscious bias when he encounters it and uses that as a teachable moment. In doing so, he demonstrates moral courage but he also treats people respectfully and with dignity. That influence drives change and individual responsibility, making the army a more effective organisation. This was an episode of The Human Advantage from the Centre for Army Leadership. It was produced and presented by Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it and maybe even share it on social media. 
For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.